Welcome to the LSQ Podcast. Our church began in April of 2017, and our vision is to joyfully live as reflections of God's love together in the city. This podcast will primarily feature sermons from Sunday worship and the occasional bonus content. We hope you'll subscribe. Good morning and welcome again to Redeemer Lincoln Square. The general social survey might be one of the best surveys out there to figure out how happy Americans actually are. The reason why is because it's been a survey that has been given every year since 1972. It's a very simple survey. They ask Americans, how happy are you? And generally for decades, most Americans said that they were more happy than not happy. But that's the past couple years, recently that's flipped. What's happened is people's unhappiness has skyrocketed and people's happiness has plummeted. And so it's made social scientists wonder what's happened because this is a multi-year trend. It's happened across every single demographic, every single people group. This is happening. And it's made all the more perplexing, I think, because our culture tells us that the most important thing for you to do, that the purpose of reality, that the point of reality, that the the, the meaning of life is to be happy. And yet, more people than ever before right now are trying to be happy, and yet, the more we're trying to be happy, the less happiness we have. Why is that? Why is that? Each week, we've been doing a series looking at various cultural narratives that we are swimming in all the time here in New York City, here in America. We are looking at ones that we've grown up in, that are always around us, that are not necessarily arguments. They are stories that affect our imaginations. They are stories that uh, change what we do and how we live our lives. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to compare and contrast these narratives with the biblical narrative. And I would argue that, you know, if they work fine, but if they are not working, or they're not working the way they should, then we need to inoculate ourselves against these narratives so that we do not hurt our lives and hurt the lives of those around us through them. Today we are looking at the very powerful secular narrative of happiness. And we're doing that, we're doing this whole series by looking at the, the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians that has all these same themes, interestingly. So let's break this text down in three ways. Why we're not happy... What brings true happiness, and then how do we get it, right? Why are we not happy? What then will bring real happiness, and then how do we get it? So it's why, what, and how. So first, why? Why aren't we happy? Look at our our text. This is the the first paragraph is, is 1 Corinthians, which is a letter Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. These are people that are new Christians. They intellectually believe in Christianity, but they actually haven't moved in their hearts the implications of that faith. They haven't actually figured out what that means. And so last week we were in the end of chapter 6 where Paul was trying to work through the topic of sex and intimacy. Today now we're in chapter 7 because Paul's just going through various topics. And the context for our text is actually marriage in general. And yet our first text here is the summary statement where he's summarizing. He actually says, what I mean. But in other words, here's what I want to tell you. And the summary is that since time 
is short. What I mean, brothers and sisters, since time is short, what? Since time is short, look at verse 31. Things of this world are passing away. And in between, you say, what's going on in between? He lists five things that are passing away. Five things that time is too short on. It's marriage, mourning, happiness, and possessions, or money. That's four. And the fifth one is kind of a catch-all phrase. The very last phrase, he says, those who use the things of this world who are engrossed in them. And you say, okay, what's he saying? He's saying this. He's saying to all you people out there who are trying to, even 2,000 years ago, but also today, that you're trying to get relationships, you're trying to get money, you're trying to get stuff to be happy, he's saying it's not going to work. Why? Because time is too short. It's all passing away. See, our tendency is to elevate something in our hearts and saying that, that thing, that's what I have to get to have happiness. That's our tendency. And yet it's all passing away. And the problem for the Corinthians was this. And yet I would say that it's actually a bigger problem for us today because unlike any other culture ever, our culture decided to make happiness acquisition the main thing of life. And this is so embedded in the American psyche. It's even in our Declaration of Independence, right? Thomas Jefferson put the pursuit of happiness there. In, in other words, the very thing that Paul says is passing away, we've decided to latch onto and say, that's it. That's what we need to get. You say, how did we get here? We got here because modern culture has concluded that the only thing we're positive about is this present world. That's the only thing we can really be sure of. We can't really be sure of what happens after this world, what happens after death. And therefore, we must find happiness in the material world, in the physical world. That's why in New York Circuit today, often you hear this phrase thrown around. People will say, hey, you know what? You do you. Hey, guess what? In the end, in the very end, you just got to do what will make you happy. All I want is for you to be happy. This probably wasn't a big deal for you, but um, in my family, my mom and my dad were big Star Trek nerds. I became one as well. We love Star Trek. And so when the 2009 reboot with Chris Pine showed up, we were all very excited and happy. But it was very surprising when at the end of the movie, Ambassador Spock, speaking back to his younger self, right, he's logical, everything's about logic, and he says this. He says, put aside logic, Spock. Do what feels right. It's the cultural narrative, which I guess we should see that it's going to be written into our stories, but I shouldn't have been surprised because of that. But that's our cultural narrative. And you say, well, okay, well, okay, fine, Mike, but how's it actually wrong? Where do you think it's actually wrong? Well, let me give you two problems quickly. First is this. If happiness, if the happiness is found in the physical material world, and guess what? Culturally speaking, we have more physical stuff, more material things than ever before than in any other society. Isn't it interesting that as, even though we have more stuff than ever before, we're actually less happy than ever before? And I think this is because ultimately you can't find your contentment in physical things. Jonathan Haidt has a book called The Happiness Hypothesis where he says the reason for this is because all material things at some level is going to fail you. And he gives a list why. It's going to fail you because one of 
three things is going to happen. Either you won't actually achieve that thing that you say you have to have to be happy in this world. You'll strive your whole life. You'll try for it. If I just get a little bit more money, if I just get that promotion, if I just get that, that relationship, well, that relationship didn't work out. If I get that relationship, maybe that one will work out. Either you'll never get it or you'll get it, but it won't be satisfying. It won't be enough. Psychologists actually have a term for this. It's, it's, it's um, like, a, I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's, it's a learned uh, level that whenever level you get, that you think if you get it, then you'll be happy. You get there, and then you kind of get used to it, and then there's another one you want. So either you'll never achieve it, or you'll achieve it and it won't satisfy, or guess what? For some of you, it might satisfy for a little bit, but just give it some time, and it'll be taken away from you with age, health, somebody else time, it goes away. And there's so many examples of this. They're everywhere, right? Pick, there's so many celebrities that have so many bi- biographies out there talking about how they strove for fame. They, they wanted it. They desired it. They got it. And it wasn't what they wanted. Recently, I, I've been looking at Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey has lots of good stuff on this. But you have, you have Brad Pitt's biography. You have so many biographies. One of my favorite examples is Michael Jordan because Michael Jordan, when he retired, he was at the top. He was the best basketball player by far than anybody else. And when he was interviewed and said, you've accomplished all this stuff. What more could you want? You know what he said? I wish I was a little bit better. Because, by the way, that's what drove him, how he got there. But then when he got there, it it wasn't that. He wanted more. I wish I was a little bit better. Why is that? It's because... We've bought into this narrative. To get happiness, we have, well, to have happiness, we have to get it for ourselves. And yet, what we know from life is most of us will never achieve our goals. And if we do, they won't satisfy. And if they satisfy for even a little bit, they'll be taken away. That's the problem with this narrative, is that it leaves us completely defenseless to suffering. Every other culture before this one Rooted happiness not in, this, in the present world. It was always in reincarnation or in honoring your parents or in some religious assumptions. But our culture says, no, it's in this world. And the problem with that is suffering takes away happiness. And everybody suffers to some degree, which means everybody will be unhappy to some degree. That's the problem. First problem with this narrative. Now, the second problem is a little simpler, and that's this. Try to imagine billions of people all working for their own physical individual happiness. Let's just play that out for a little bit. If we do, what we'll realize is this narrative makes this world a worse place. Because guess what? What happens when my happiness (laughs) comes in conflict with your happiness? What happens when to have my happiness, I need your happiness to end? Wait, what happens when my life choices impact your life choices? See, living for your own happiness, you know what it does? It creates selfish people. And selfish people prioritize themselves. And when you prioritize yourselves, a world doing that leads to a worse world. That's why Paul is like, you guys just don't get it. It's all passing away. And so it all can't make you ultimately happy. In fact, the fact that this is actually true, that it's all passing away, I think it's actually a powerful argument for why perhaps you are not made to be fulfilled by everything in this world. This is actually C.S. Lewis's argument in The Four Loves. He says, everybody has a, a hole in your heart and we're trying to fill it with stuff. 
and the fact that nothing in this world will fully fill it means maybe you were not made for just this world. You were not made to be fulfilled by something in this world, that you were made for something outside of it. And so before we move on, I want to ask us some diagnostic questions. Where might you have unknowingly absorbed this narrative in your life? Right? Where, where have you maybe assumed that this world at some level can make you happy, and that's why you've been working towards it, and that's why you've been focusing on things? Maybe you're unha- unhappy right now because we're looking at something that can't actually make us happy. Good things, by the way, like things that I want people to have. I want people to have marriages and money and uh, even mourning, Paul says. And yet it melts between our fingers. Where have we put too much time And by the way, time we're short on, on these things. Some of you, if you call yourself a Christian here today, if you spend 99% of your day, your world, your week, on on thinking about the things of this world, on work, and 1% on God, 1% on things that can't be taken away from you, guess what? Of course we've bought into this narrative then. Of course it's not going to work out for us. Where has it happened in your life? Everybody has a different version, a different matrix. Where is it for you? Because whatever it is, when we're doing that, it's leading to breakdown in ourselves, into the world. It's not working. Where our expectations about how our lives are going are unmet because our world can't actually hold them. Because... We haven't properly considered the shortness of time. That's why we're not happy. All right, point one. Point two now. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after worship on Sundays. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastoral team and other members of our church community. If you have a question, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us at Q&R on a Sunday morning. And now, back to this week's sermon. Then what will actually bring real happiness? At first, I think Paul's answer, if you read, if you read this paragraph a couple times, Paul sounds kind of like a stoic, doesn't he? Don't be happy. Don't fr- go for marriage. Don't, what else does he say? Like, don't uh, buy things. That's what, it, that's what it sounds like, right? But that would be misreading Paul because Paul's very precise with his words. And if you get to the end of this first paragraph, he says, those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. That key word is is engrossed. I looked it up in um, a Greek dictionary of of this, how this word is used in all of antiquity and all the Bible. And generally speaking, it's used, um, it, it means to use something with authority in your life. In other words, Paul actually has no problem with marriage or not marriage, or stuff or not stuff. His point is, don't use it as an authority in your life. Instead, what brings real happiness is down in verse 31. For this world in its present form is passing away. Again, if you go too quickly, you'll think, oh, he's saying this world's passing away. Because no, it's this world in its present form is passing away. That's not the same thing. That means there are some forms that are not passing away. In other words, it's this. If life is eternity, then the chapter of your life right now, this world, this place, is the shortest chapter of eternity. That's what he's trying to say. And then therefore, 
That's the reason why. Because we don't have our hope in just this present world, but in something bigger and longer. That's why he can go then in 2 Corinthians, the second time he talks to these people, and he's, he's able to say this. He says, that's why we do not lose heart. This is verse 16. And we don't lose heart. Why? Because even when our body is wasting away, right, the present, even when it's happening, we're being renewed inwardly day by day. That's what it says. And, and therefore, what does he say? He says, don't fix your eyes on what is seen. Fix your eyes on what is unseen. Why? Because the seen is temporary and the unseen is eternal. Now, that sounds kind of, that's a little heady, but let me try to give you an example for this. Take a rock. I'm, pick, I'm purposely picking a rock because a rock is boring, isn't it? Right? It's just a rock. But let's, what is in, what's contained in, in a rock? If you really want to think about a rock, there's some pretty cool things. There's properties, weight, uh, the, the, the mineral content of it, the, the millions of years it takes to form it, um, the attributes it has when it's wet, when it's dry, in the light, in the darkness. Some pretty amazing things if you think about a rock. If you focus on a rock that we're just seeing, there are some beauties and particularities. So many of them, you can't even name them all, about a rock. And yet, what Paul's saying is, that's just seeing. It can't pale. It pales in comparison to the beauties that are found in the unseen. So he says, fix your eyes on that. Now, I don't know about you, but it's really hard to fix your eyes on the unseen, is it not? How do you do that? Well, luckily for us, if you go to Hebrews 12, 2, which some people think Paul wrote as well, the same phrase shows up, fix your eyes, but on what? Fix your eyes on Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith. What's going on there? Jesus was unseen, but became seen. Jesus was, you, didn't, you couldn't see Jesus, right? Third member of the Trinity, until he was, bec- was able to become seen. So when we fix our eyes on him, what happens? Seeking our own happiness. We just said this earlier. What does it do? It leads to unhappiness. It causes pain. It causes selfishness. Selfishness that you and I probably don't even think about. That's one of the biggest problems in the world. As we think about our own happiness, we don't see how little micro versions of brokenness are entering into the world through our own self-perception and need of happiness and how it creates cracks and crevices into the fabric of reality. And yet it does. And what we're told is the biblical narrative is that as much as that creates suffering, prioritizing our own happiness, Jesus enters into the world, loses his happiness so that you and I could actually have real happiness. On the cross, what's happening there? The full distance of God is impacting Jesus. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's happening in that moment? Before he was saying, Father, he had relationship. Now it's gone. He gets all the sorrow and sadness and grief and misery and discontent. So now you get eternal glory. That is why we don't grow weary. That is why we don't lose heart. But this is all kind of ethereal, so let me try to make this as, as practical as possible. Um, I got a cut a few weeks ago. It was right here on my collarbone. It was a cut. Um, I like to say it's a cut. It was probably a, a big zit because uh, it looked like that too. But I want to say it's a cut. And I had a cut right here, and it was, it was pussy and oozing, and, and um, you know, I was trying to, I was trying to you know, bandage it up, but it was clearly infected. And the thing about infection is that what's crazy to think about is this. If you let an infection continue on, you will die. A small little cut like that, cut, on your shoulder, on your, sorry, collarbone, will kill you. All it takes is one cut, and you bleed out. 
But what we don't realize is what's happening on the, on the site of that infection, at that space, the brokenness of that infection, there's a huge battle that's happening. And that pus that's coming out of that cut is actually the culmination of all the dead white corpuscles that have sacrificed themselves so that you live. And so we look at that pus, we go, oh, it's kind of gross. But actually, what you think is gross is actually pretty glorious. Because what's, you can live only because something, someone else dies. Millions of white corpuscles gave their lives for your life. And what I love about this, what's amazing to think about, and I, I try to think about it as often as possible, is that God's burning heart for you is so real, it's etched into every single cell in your body. The idea that someone else has to die for you to really live. That somebody has to sacrifice themselves for the brokenness of the world so that you live is etched into your body. That God's secret for how the universe works is in the infinite small spaces of your DNA on the cellular level so that even when you don't actually live this out, your body still is. That's what's so beautiful. That's, that's, that's the core of reality that we find in, in the larger narrative of Jesus, but it's actually inside your body. And ironically, your body gets it even when you don't. Your blood literally testifies to the blood shed for you because of the cost of brokenness. And so go back to the beauty and majesty that Paul, Paul's all very ethereal here, but what he's trying to say, fix your eyes on what's unseen. And then in Hebrews 12, fix your eyes on what's unseen. Jesus, who's the author and perfecter of our faith. Why do that? Because that's the location of happiness. Not just what he did for you, which is a happy occasion, but also God can't actually give you happiness apart from himself. Why? Because the nature of God, as the author and perfecter of all things good, he can't give you happiness outside of giving himself to you. Because every good thing comes from him and is a reflection of him. And so you can only truly be happy when you actually know him. And so my question to you on this area is this. How often do you actually access this happiness? See, I think we don't, we don't think how, how powerful this really is. That you can go anytime, anywhere, any place, and get it. Infinite access. It's not because it wasn't costly. It was costly, but it's not for you. And the more you recognize that, the more you see that the world says, go out there and get your real happiness, and yet we, the data is coming in and we're seeing it, that's not actually going to work. That your true happiness found in the person of Jesus, his life and death for you, and you can access that anywhere. The more you realize that, the less you're going to need to get your happiness anywhere else. So, last point. How do you actually get it? Right? If you really fix your eyes on Jesus, what, you're, you're, you should be saying, Michael, what does it actually look like in my life? Let me give you just two practical applications. One, to fix your eyes means to gaze. What does it mean to gaze? Gaze at some level means to train and to focus. I'll tell you what gaze is not. Gaze is not like a sideways like glance, like looking out the side of your, your eyes. It's not a blink. To gaze means there's a focus there. There is a, an enduring, persistent commitment of focus. You say, what does that look like? Well, I think on, uh, there's a couple levels to it, right? There's an, an intentional level, an intelligent level, and, a, and, a, and an, um, an intense level to it. What do I mean by that? Well, my question to you is this. How many of you actually approach your relationship with Jesus intentionally? 
And a lot of times, I, I don't know about you, but sometimes I do it haphazardly. I say, well, I'm, I'm having a hard day. Okay, maybe now I will. When I'm having a good day or a busy day, eh. No, to gaze, to really gaze, there's a level of intentionality. To be intentional means to, to focus on what? Well, there's so much to focus on. For instance, one little thing. Carolyn brought it up earlier in the service. Praise. You know, how long, you know how much it takes time to praise? It's not just content, it's action. When was the last time you spent 20 minutes just praising God? When was the last time you made that the main part of your prayer life? It takes, there's a level of intentionality to see the beauty of the cross, to focus on it, to see it, and not just think about it conceptually, but then let that turn into praise as it's uttered out of our personhood. It takes a deep, intentional level. When I was a, a college pastor, I used to tell students, they would say, hey, I want to date, I want to, I want to get in a relationship. And I always say, okay, whatever you do, that's fine, but just be intentional with each other because you're going to hurt each other if you're not intentional. If you're kind of haphazard about it. And I, I spoke from experience because that's what my college pastor said to Sarah, my now, my now wife, about me as we were in relationship. Because I was not intentional. Intentionality is gazing. Now, it's also intelligent. What do I mean by that? Well, when Paul says to gaze, he's not saying, you know, focus on a blank wall. Stare at a blank wall, like zone out. That's not what it means. To gaze, is, is, there's a, a mental thinking and processing that goes on. To gaze means to, means to fix our eyes on Jesus, and the best place to do that is actually in Scripture. Because what's happened in Scripture, it's, we're getting the history of how God has cared and loved us in the past, and as we memorize and as we let it affect us, we can know how, how God's going to treat us in the future and in today and in tomorrow. So there's an intelligent aspect as we gaze we're asking scripture questions. If I really believe this today more today than I did yesterday, how would I be different? If I, as I look in scripture, I can actually see what can I praise God for today. See, it can actually infuse intentionality intelligently. What can I confess God to? What, what can I be thankful to God? All because of scripture. And then, lastly, intensely. What do I mean by that? A gaze is always intense, right? It's not, again, it's not just a looking here and there. To gaze, is, there's an, an, an intensity that, to that, a degree, where we pl- get a deep sense of God's love and care for us that we can't get anywhere else. And you know what that does? It brings contentment. What's contentment? Contentment is happiness, but it's better than happiness because it's abiding. Because why? Because gazing on beauty does that. To find him satisfying. Look, if you go to Psalm 27, you know what David's doing there? He says, I, all I want to do is I want to gaze at God. By the way, you, gazing at God is not David thinking of God as like God has beautiful eyes. He's not thinking of God physically. To gaze at God is the truth of God becoming tr- real in his heart. So let me just take a, a concept hard for you and me. Holiness is a hard concept. When I say God is holy, most of you go, hmm. There are other concepts about holiness, right? What's holiness? Set apart, pure. But to gaze at God's holiness means that starts not just being an intellectual idea, it is a comfort. Because why? It's, it's, in, it's, in, it's thrilling knowing that God is holy because it means he's good and he's just and he's real and he's going to come through for us in the end. Friends, happiness is found in gazing. And if you do that, you will delight. And when you delight, you'll see his beauty. And when you see his beauty... You're not going to need the happiness of the world anymore. 
Right? That, that's what we see here. We can find true and real happiness. That's first application. The last application is this. Fix your eyes to the gaze, but it's also, it takes time. It, it takes time. The older I get, the longer it takes for me to fix my eyes. Why? Because I look in the dark and it takes more time to adjust. It, looking into the distance and looking near just takes more time. And I know you and I are busy New Yorkers, and so time is not, is not what we have, but this is saying if you really want joy, real joy, real happiness, then the way you're going to get that, where the other happinesses in the world don't actually affect you as much or, or you need them as much, is it's going to take time. And so what I want you to do before we leave is this. Look over the, the, the course of your life. Right now, if you're still needing to prove yourself, it's possible you haven't made him your joy. If right now you're really bitter at somebody and you can't let go and somebody's really just, your blood boils as you think about them, it's possible you haven't really made him your joy. I'm not saying there's not real hurt and there's not real injustice and there's not real pain out there. I'm saying, do you let it ruin you because you're needing something from it that it can't give you, that only God can give you? What this is actually saying is, when you're overworking, when you're burning out, when you have no boundaries, it's because you haven't made him your joy. You will need to know that he's your real joy. And you'll know it because this, this is how you know it. Here's the test. When there's hurts, when there's hardships, when there's some deprivation of something that you really felt like you needed and it goes away and you don't go to pieces, then you actually made, it, made him your joy. Because it doesn't defeat you. It's for, what it does is it further slams you into the need of him, and he's there available for you, and you grab hold, and what you'll find every single time is you're there in more beautiful, wondrous, awe-inspiring ways than you thought was even available before. Friends, you'll be lucky this side of eternity. If you can make it 80 to 100 years, you'll be lucky. But in 80 to 100 years that you live... It's just a fraction of the infinite time that you're going to have. And when you know that, you're not going to value, here's what you're going to do. You're just not going to value buying those sneakers as much as you thought. You're not going to need to buy that jacket for your happiness or that house or that space. You're just not going to need it. You're not going to need people and places and things in the same way. When When you have the unseen beauties of Jesus in your life, what will end up happening is, it's going to change your calculus even where you live. What do I mean by that? It's possible that we came to New York to try to get what we can out of it, then to leave to go to a cheaper, nicer place, right? It's possible that's true. And a culture for our own happiness says do that. But with this calculus in our life, we don't actually have to do that anymore, right? It's possible that we don't leave the hard places, we go further in. See, the culture says, hey, homelessness, which is all over New York City, mental illness, all over New York City, we should get the heck out of that. But this changed our calculus, saying, no, actually, if this is real, if Jesus did this for us, then we can go further into these spaces and stay in them. And that's why there's incredible resources here. It's the key to everything. If creature comforts are no longer the highest good, then Jesus is, and as he is, and he loves others, then we can love others too. Secular culture, I think, thinks that if we start gazing on Jesus, it'll pull us out of the world. I actually think it's the opposite. Gazing on him, seeing what he loves, and the fact that he loves the world and loves other people, then we're going to do the same thing. 
We would be slower to be transient, quicker to meet others, slower to need stuff, quicker to actually help others. Seeing Jesus changes us in this way. Because we're here to live joy. Are you ready to live joy, friends? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you move our hearts, change us. Father, some of us are afraid. We're afraid because we're not sure you're going to be enough. We're not sure. Michael, I'm up here saying he's enough, but how do we know, Father? We know because we're not going to be dropped, because you never drop what's precious, and we're precious to you. We're so precious to you, Father, that you died and lived for us. And the fact that you did that years and years ago is proof that you're not going to do that then just to drop us now. I pray that we would move, let this come into our lives in profound ways. Let it be the seed of our happiness, Father, because this cultural narrative is so deeply rooted. It's so hard to get out of. Let it change who we are and as we see who you really are. Pray all things in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We pray that it's a helpful resource as you process aspects of Christianity and grow in your faith. To learn more about our church, including details about Sunday worship, check out our website at RedeemerLSQ.com.